0: Our text today is John chapter 1. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you look all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 51 says, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Heavenly Father, As we study today, may we know Jesus. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Who are you? Who is the person across the room from you? Look around and think of how you would answer that question. Because the answers to those questions are going to include include names and labels and identifiers of many different shapes and sizes. Asked to say who you are, you might answer that question quite differently depending on who the person is who's asking you or why they're asking you. And your answers, though they may be different, will all be true, right? Does that make sense? Think of the different ways somebody might identify me. I'm Travis. You guys know that, right? Somebody from back home would say of me, though, that that's Tom and Janie's son, their youngest. But who else am I? Some people know me as Mitzi's husband. It's a fine label. Some people know me as dad to one of the three children. That are mine, right? I am pastor, or if you ask Sierra Hines, I'm pastors. That's how she refers to me, and it's so sweet. To some people, I'm the guy that did their wedding. They had known nothing else about me. To some people, I am a student who studied computer programming and information processing with them in the '90s. To some folks. And this is true, there are people who think of me with only this category, I'm the guy with the guitar, a music person. And to some people, I'm that blind guy that lives in their neighborhood. And every one of those labels about me are true, aren't they? And all of them help you get to know a little bit of who I am. All of them are important things, and if you put all those labels together, you get a better picture of who I am than if you left any of them out, right? All of us have labels that have to be put together to help people know just who we are. That's true for you. It's true for me. And as we study the Bible together, it's going to be true as we think about Jesus. Over the past several weeks, we've worked our way through chapter one of the gospel according to John. You realize we started that at the beginning of December, right? So here we go, right? I want to remind you of a few things that will help you remember where we've been. John chapter 1 begins with a section we call the prologue. It's a section of 18 verses that introduce the book to us. It highlights major themes for us. And we spent three weeks during the Christmas season working our way through that rich, rich passage. The prologue talks about Jesus as God who took on flesh. It introduces the motifs of light compared to darkness, of belief compared to rejection, of Jesus' superiority to great men like Moses or John the Baptist, and much more. Then, verses 19 through 36, we see John the Baptist and we hear John's testimony. The Baptist points away from himself and he points people to Jesus. Jesus. John came to call the nation of Israel to prepare to meet the one God had promised, to be ready for the arrival of God in the flesh. John tells people how he met Jesus, baptized him, and experienced the miracle of the Lord identifying Jesus as God's own son. John pointed his disciples to Jesus. John sent his disciples to go follow Jesus. And if you look at 35 all the way down to 51, you see a quick succession of scenes. Andrew and John, the gospel writer, go follow Jesus. Andrew gathers Simon Peter in and brings him to Jesus. Jesus calls on Philip to follow him. Philip brings his brother Nathaniel, And chapter 1 closes with Jesus having now five Disciples, five followers. Now, before we go on to chapter two, I want to have us spend a couple of messages taking a last look at chapter one. Instead of looking at just one section of this chapter, though, I want us to take some time to look at different names, labels, and descriptions of that are applied to Jesus. Because after all, if you and I can be known better by the things that people call us, how important is it that we think well about the things God the Father inspired John the Apostle to write about Jesus, the Son of God? So here's what we're going to do. Lord willing, for the next two messages, we are going to run through a dozen labels or descriptions of Jesus that you find in John chapter 1. By the way, does it surprise you to think that there are 12 at least labels for Jesus in one chapter? They call Jesus the Word, God, the Light, the Son of God, Christ or Messiah, Lamb of God, He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, Rabbi, Him of whom Moses and the Law and also the Prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Joseph, the king of Israel, son of man. Now, I want to make this a little easier, though. I want to group these 12 descriptions into four categories. And what that means is we're not going to take them all even in the order that we find them in the chapter, but we can see them in the, in, in the sense, we'll find a sense of order that I think will make sense. That's what I'm trying to say. Hopefully we can find a useful way to see these together. So I want us to do two categories today and two categories next week. And hopefully when we're done, the whole point is going to be that we will know Jesus better. So you with me? Does this sound like a good idea? Good, because if you say no, I don't know what to do because I've already got the sermon written and it would be very, very difficult for me. Category number one for you who write down categories... Jesus offers salvation. Write that down. Jesus offers salvation. What I'm going to end up doing is giving you three labels for Jesus in that, okay? Now, on a regular basis, on a regular basis, I listen to a podcast by Albert Moeller called The Briefing. Any of you all briefing listeners in this room? A couple of you? Yeah, okay, good. And I often find Dr. Moeller's insights on the news and the events helpful. He helps me think better. Although I have to admit, sometimes listening to the briefing can be a touch on the discouraging side. Y'all identify with that too? right? You know what I'm talking about. Well, this Friday, just a couple days ago, Dr. Mohler highlighted a couple of articles about the New Age practice of manifesting. Um, It's funny, I saw Donna Irwin write about this on Facebook this week too, so I know folks are paying attention. Now, if you haven't heard this word used by the younger generation understand that it is a similar practice to the old school power of positive thinking or the more modern charismatic attempt to speak a truth into being. Someone who practices manifesting believes that he or she can say something enough times or imagine a thing enough times that they can manipulate the powers in the universe out there to change their reality and receive the thing that they desire. That is, by the way, untrue and dangerous. One of the elements in the world of manifesting or secular positive thinking practices is that you claim your own greatness... Or you claim your self-sufficiency. You say to yourself, I am great. I am beautiful. I am powerful. I am enough. I am complete. Or if you're of the right generation, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. If you say those things over and over, the Manifestor will say, or if you imagine it hard enough, it is what you will actually be. Now, can you imagine that I would tell you that there are dangers to a practice like this? What do you think? Yeah. First of all, all New Age practices leave a person dangerously open to the influence of the demonic. And all these practices consider the divine to be an energy force that can be manipulated by your minds or crystals or other things. You start believing that the universe itself is a being that listens to your instructions while it lacks a personality. But perhaps as dangerous as anything in these practices, manifesting and things like this, New Age positive thinking, Joel Osteen name-it-and-claim-it stuff, all of these things deny your deep need for salvation. But a study of God's word will make you powerfully, even uncomfortably aware that we need a Savior. Why do we need a Savior? God is perfect, holy, utterly and completely without sin, flawless in every way. And God created us for a relationship with himself. But all of us, every last single one of us, has turned against God in rebellion. Every one of us have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect glory, Romans 3.23. We've all earned the sentence of eternal death, for rebelling against God, Romans 6, 23, or the passage in Ephesians that we read this morning, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And we need desperately a Savior. Because if God doesn't rescue us, no amount of positive thinking, repeated declarations to the universe, or personal manifesting can save your very soul from destruction. Now listen to me carefully. I am not looking at you and saying that you are worse than somebody else in the world. Maybe you've committed big and ugly sins you know are big, ugly sins. Maybe you think you've basically been a pretty good person. It really doesn't matter, though. No matter how good you've been, no matter how bad you've been, you have never managed to be as perfect as God. Y'all agree with that? And that imperfection, that falling short, that creates an infinite gap between you and the God who made you. You can't bridge that gap on your own. You need somebody to rescue you. Thanks be to God. God delights in showing mercy before time began god chose that he would rescue a people for himself a people who could never save themselves and everyone who believes in the lord jesus christ is included in that group jesus brings salvation and the first category we're looking at today We're going to see three labels for Jesus that will hint to us that Jesus is the one who brings us salvation. So let's get started. The first one I want to give you, which may seem a little odd, is the light. The first name I'll give you for Jesus is the light. If you look in your Bible at verse 9, John 1, 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In John's Gospel, you're going to see a regular contrast of light versus dark. Light represents good. Darkness represents the evil of the world. That's not complicated, right? Chapter 3, you're going to have a whole section talking about people loving the darkness instead of the light because their deeds are evil. When Judas Iscariot in chapter 13 leaves the upper room to go betray Jesus, you know what John says about that moment? It was night. But when the resurrection of Jesus is discovered and people begin to understand more and more of what has happened, we keep hearing about how the day has dawned. Well, right here, Jesus is described as the true light that gives light to every person. And when we studied that back in December, the point was Jesus shines truth. Light, grace on all people. Every person who has ever lived, every person who will ever live has a responsibility to respond to Jesus. Turning to Jesus for life, that's like running into the light. Refusing Jesus is like turning your back on the light and embracing darkness. Jesus is, the Bible says, the true light. I'm not being new age or mystical here. This is just one simple metaphor that makes sense. It's easy to understand. God puts in front of you an opportunity to either be in the light and out of the darkness or to go into the darkness and stay out of the light. This is God letting you know Jesus brings salvation. You can be saved in Jesus. Second one I'll give you. Second label under this category is the Lamb. Look down in your Bible, down at your Bible now, verse twenty-nine. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world." Verse thirty-six also we see John the Baptist repeat that name for Jesus. Now, we spent a good amount of time in our message on January 3rd talking about what it means that Jesus is the Lamb of God. But I want to point us back to that truth really quickly in the category of that Jesus brings salvation. In the Old Testament, lambs were sacrificed as substitutes. See, all sin before God merits, earns death. God, in God's kindness, told the people in the Old Testament that they could come to him and slaughter clean animals like lambs, sometimes oxen or birds, as sacrifices. And the idea in the sacrifice is that though the person who sinned deserves to die God will allow his wrath to be placated, his anger to be propitiated by counting the animal as bearing the sin of the sinner. Doesn't take much thought, though, if you really think it through, to see that there's no little lamb on the earth that has the same value as a human being, right? Unless you're involved to some particular left-wing groups involving animal rights, you do not think a critter has the same right as a person. With me? No animal can honestly pay the infinite penalty that we deserve for sinning against an infinitely holy God. In point of fact, the lambs in the Old Testament, you know what they were like? They were like placeholders, if you can think that through god allowed those sacrifices to be made and god genuinely forgave the people who made those offerings in faith but for god to actually both be perfectly just and perfectly merciful something greater than an animal would have to die to pay the infinite price for every single sin that god would ever forgive the sacrificial lambs in the old testament They pointed forward to the true sacrificial lamb who would take away the sin of the world. The sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament point people to Jesus. Y'all with me? Now, here's the thing. Here's a question. That sounds theological, doesn't it? Is it biblical? I think it's a fair question. Travis, can you back that up? If you want to look, you can look at the book of Hebrews chapter 9. In a couple of verses in chapter 10, I'm going to read those to you now. Hebrews 9:22 says, "Indeed, under the law almost everything is purified with blood. Listen, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins." So, let me ask you again, what forgiveness of sins is there without the shedding of blood? None. Hebrews 10, though 1 through 4, Listen to this, Hebrews 10, 1-4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The law of God, the sacrificial system, has a shadow of things to come. But the law and the law's sacrifices, if they were left to themselves, would never have been able to take away sins. Lambs and bulls and goats cannot take away your sin. Neither can your good behavior. No, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were like a spiritual IOU. Can you think of that that way? Have you ever put an IOU down somewhere? You borrow something and you write a note that says, I'll, I'll pay this back. It's as if when they, when they sacrificed a lamb, someone was able to put down before God, I owe you an infinitely worthy sacrifice. It's on its way. That's what the lambs were in the Old Testament. Spiritual IOUs reminding God the Father of the sacrifice to come that would truly cover every single sin that God would ever forgive. Romans chapter 3 gives us the same idea. I want you to hear this. This is important in understanding the rationale, the reasoning, and the way of God. Romans 3:23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and, verse 24, are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is good news, right? Now listen to the wise here. What did Paul tell us? Sin merits death, and he tells us we are justified before God, not by our actions, but as a gift through faith, and it all has to do with the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus died like a lamb as a propitiation to take the anger of God for our sins away. He died to pay our penalty. He died and was actually able to pay the infinite price for every single sin god will ever forgive jesus's death proves that god is just both perfectly punishing all sin and graciously showing mercy jesus died as the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world now remember the category of thinking is that jesus offers salvation As the light of the world, Jesus shines on everybody, and he calls all people everywhere to turn to him for rescue. And as the Lamb of God, Jesus died to take upon himself the proper penalty for all the sins God would ever forgive. Let me give you one more label in this category, okay? The third name or label in the category, Jesus offers salvation. He's called he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 33 of John 1. John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So verse 33, that's part of John the Baptist pointing people to Jesus. The Baptist was telling people that God had called him to baptize. Right? God also told John that one of the men he would baptize would have something spectacular happen and it would single that one out among all the others. The Holy Spirit of God was going to come down out of heaven in a visible form and rest on and remain on this man. And that's exactly what happened when John baptized Jesus. And it identifies Jesus as the one who would baptize not with water as John did, but with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, John's baptism, unlike what you and I practice today, it was about symbolically cleansing people to prepare them to meet God. Jesus would do more. Instead of symbolically making people clean, Jesus would truly clean people and make them able to stand in the presence of God because he would baptize people, he would cleanse people with the spirit of Almighty God. Understand, for you and me to be saved, we need more than forgiveness. Did you know that? That you need more than forgiveness? After all, even if you're forgiven, does that make you somehow all of a sudden holy enough to approach God just because God is not punishing you for things you've done? Are you as holy as God on your own right now? See, Jesus, though, is not just the Lamb. Jesus is the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Jesus does not only take away your sin. Jesus grants to you a righteousness that you could never live on your own. Jesus makes us truly clean, not because we've ever lived clean, but because of his life and because of his giving to us the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus offers Salvation. He's the light that shines on all of us and offers us the opportunity to come to God, to come to Him for salvation. Jesus is the Lamb of God who died to pay for every sin God will ever forgive. And Jesus is the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, truly making all who come to Him holy enough to enter the presence of Almighty God. Now, let me just ask you, just, just me and you here, putting the sermon on pause Does this not make you want to respond to God today? If you've never come to Jesus for salvation, don't turn your back on the light. That leads to death. Run to Jesus in your heart. Run to Jesus and believe in Jesus and ask Jesus to forgive you for your sin and ask him to change your life and ask him to fill you with God's spirit and receive the salvation Jesus offers. I urge you, I invite you, and by the authority of God, I would command you, repent, believe in Jesus, and be saved. Christians, would you agree that's a good call for anybody who doesn't know Jesus yet? All right. Now, but Christians, does this text not make you, those three labels, don't they make you want to respond to Jesus with gratitude? Our Savior is wonderful. Praise Him and love Him. Even today, yield more and more of your life and yourself to Him. Now, I want to give us the second category, real quick, of names for Jesus in John chapter 1. Category number 2, Jesus is God's promised king. Category number 2, Jesus is God's promised king. Have you ever noticed how many great, great stories involve a chosen one? You ever know that? How many of you are fiction readers or movie watchers? couple of you. How many of you are but don't want to admit it in church? Because you think <laughs> you should be holier than that. Wouldn't you agree though? Uh, doesn't every good, good, good story have a chosen one in it? Novels, powerful tales. There's a world in need of a hero to come. But there's one who's been promised, one who's been predicted, one who has been prophesied a great future king will put down the evil around him and bring a new era of peace and prosperity to the world. Tolkien, right? Lord of the Rings. Who did he have? He had Aragorn, the king who would return, right? And set things right. C.S. Lewis. Who's the hero? The lion, Aslan. Aslan. J.K. Rowling repeatedly speaks of Harry Potter as the chosen one who points, and she points to prophecies that only little Harry can fulfill to take the evil man out of the world. George Lucas tells you that Anakin Skywalker is the prophesied one who will bring balance to the force. Maybe if you're more historical, think of the old English legends. Arthur. Arthur would arise and bring peace to the land by his powerful sword. Why is that such a popular motif in storytelling? It's because those stories, as fanciful as some of them are, they are drawing on the one true story of a promised king and rescuer. When I teach children about the Bible, and if you're children in here, and pay, pay attention to me for a minute if you're a little one, it's okay. I love to talk about the promise that God made because it ties to Jesus, but it goes even further than just calling Jesus Savior. See, back in the Garden of Eden, you guys know the Garden of Eden, the first man and the first woman fought against God and turned to sin. They turned their backs on God. They they tried to be the boss of their own lives and not let God be the boss. And the sin of those people Broke the world. It plunged us into the sad state that you see now if you watch the news. And when Adam and Eve sinned, God could have destroyed them at that moment. God could have just squashed them and started over. By the way, if many of you were in God's position, that's exactly what you would have done. You would have just squashed them. Be honest, you would, wouldn't you? (laughs) But God chose something different than squashing the people that hated him. God chose to make a promise. God promised somebody would come into the world and put right what had gone wrong. And all of the Old Testament of your Bible, to a degree, is a record of that promise made by God. God promised in the garden, I'm going to send somebody into the world who will crush the devil. And the one, the one who comes into the world, he's going to be descended from the first woman, the woman in the garden. He's going to be her offspring. And God promised a man named Abram that he was going to bless the entire world through somebody born into Abram's family line. And God promised the same thing to Isaac and to Jacob, promising and promising and promising and promising a special one, an anointed one, a chosen one to come into the world and make right what was wrong when man sinned. And eventually... Those promises of God led to the formation of a whole nation, the nation of Israel. They were a nation that sprung out of the descendants of Abraham, and they were the people who were marked as the nation of God, given his laws to follow. By the way, when I say they were marked, they physically marked themselves on their bodies to say, I descend from the nation of promise. And as a nation, guess what? You think Israel was faithful? You guys know your Bibles, don't you? They weren't any more faithful than any other nation out there. They rebelled against God. They fought against God. They didn't listen to his rules. They even said to God, I don't want you to lead us anymore, God. Give us a king so we can look like all the other nations out there. We don't want to look different. We don't want to look set apart for God. And just as God promised in the garden that he was going to send somebody special into the world descended from the woman, just as God promised Abraham that a descendant of his would bless the world, God made a promise to a king of Israel. God told David that one of David's descendants was going to rule. And this descendant of David's, he would not rule just Israel. He would rule the whole world. And this descendant of David's, he would not rule for a short time, but forever forever. And this descendant of David's, he would be a promised king, an anointed one. He would be the chosen one. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 say, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Who is that promised one from God? You know, don't you? It's Jesus. And repeatedly in John chapter 1, we're going to see that the one who wrote the gospel according to John and the disciples around Jesus, they know Jesus is that promised one from God. What do they say about Jesus? One. One. Let's use the word Christ or Messiah. That's one category, Christ or Messiah. If you look at verse 17 in John 1, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through whom? Somebody's looking. Who? Grace and truth came through. Are you, did you miss the verse? Thank you, Anthony. Give Anthony another star. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, John 1.17. Look it down at verse 41. I'll show you one more verse. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. By the days of Jesus, there was a word that was used point to the one God had been promising and promising and promising it's a word that literally means anointed one in Hebrew the word is Messiah in Greek the word is Christ now funny thing about that word throughout the Old Testament the word for anointed one is applied in various ways in general What does the word mean? It means a person installed in an office and accredited by God to fulfill the role designated. And so in that concept, it was applied sometimes to Israel as a nation, God's anointed people. Sometimes it was applied to prophets or priests who were anointed. It was applied once to a foreign king used by God. It's applied to anyone who served as king of Israel. But those all point to the one true anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, who would come. Verse 17 of John 1, when John calls Jesus, Jesus Christ, I want you to grasp, John is applying the title of anointed one, or chosen one, to the person, Jesus. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus' mother was not Mary Christ, the wife of Joseph Christ. That's not what the name means. It's a title. It explains who Jesus is. It explains what Jesus does. Jesus is the one God has been promising. He is the one chosen by God to fulfill God's ultimate plan. Secondly, second name here, they call Jesus Jesus him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Look at verse 45, and you'll see that there. Philip found Nathanael, said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now that phrase used by Philip tells us what we've already been saying all along. The entirety of Scripture, the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of the Bible is written to point you to Jesus. Moses wrote about Jesus in the law. How? How? Genesis, a rescuer is promised, descended from the woman, from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, through the line of Judah. In the prophets, we talk about a promised king who would descend from David's line. And what Philip says here in John chapter 1, it's super similar to what Luke shows us in an encounter between Jesus after his resurrection and a pair of disciples on the road to Emmaus. Listen to this in Luke 24, 25 to 27. Says, He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. All Scripture points to Jesus. All God's promises point to Jesus. Jesus is the one written of in Moses and the prophets. Third, one more name here. Actually, I'll give you two more names before we're done. Third, King of Israel. Notice the term King of Israel in verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. When Nathanael calls Jesus the king of Israel, he is using Christ or Messiah language along with biblical promise language. The people of Israel knew that the one God had promised was going to be a king from the family line of David. He would be the king who would expand God's kingdom to cover the globe. He would be the king who would be king forever. And Nathanael wasn't just calling Jesus, oh, a king one of many kings, an ordinary king. No way, not not the way his tone is there. He is seeing Jesus as the king, the promised king. And I want to give you one more phrase. We're just going to touch it today. We'll use it next week for an even brighter meaning than this. But it, it applies to two categories. So the fourth name I'll give you here, son of God. That refers to Jesus as God's promised king. Again, verse 49, Nathanael called Jesus Son of God, the King of Israel. He's tying those phrases together to show us that he was using the phrase King of Israel to explain what he meant when he called Jesus Son of God. See, throughout the biblical promises that are made of the Christ, throughout the biblical promises that are made of the one to come, the anointed one, God repeatedly points to Israel as his child. God points to the king of Israel as someone who is a son to him. Son of God language, it has more than one meaning, but one part of son of God language is to point to someone as the king over Israel. Listen to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. God says toward David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now listen to the line. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, how do we know that he's not just talking about Jesus there? The next line says, When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So notice, in that promise, God's covenant made with David, God promises that David's own son Solomon will be a son to God. Other kings in the Bible are given the same kind of language. Other kings of the Bible have my son language spoken by God. But, The Messiah, the Christ, he is the ultimate and true son of God. And part of what that means is he's the ultimate king over Israel. Now, again, don't be confused by what I just said to you. Son of God has more than one facet to it. And on one face, if you call Jesus son of God, what you're saying is you're the anointed king over Israel. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the phrase from its other face and we'll see that Son of God also, also is a reference to the deity, the divinity, the godness of Christ. And you'll see that very clearly in verses 14 and 34. And for now, I think we're out of time and we have to stop. Stop. Today, we've seen Jesus called what? The light, the lamb of God, and he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And those three things all point you to the fact that Jesus offers salvation. A salvation that only Jesus could give you. And we've seen Jesus called Christ, or Messiah. Him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, and King of Israel, and Son of God. And those tell you that Jesus is the focus of Scripture and the promised King from God. If Jesus offers salvation, and he does, you should be careful to run to Jesus to receive that salvation. If Jesus is the focus of Holy Scripture, you should study it and learn it and submit to it that you might know Jesus better and honor him more. If Jesus is the promised king, you should surrender more and more and more of your life to living under his rule, under his authority, having Jesus, God's son, as your Lord. Let's pray together, friends. Lord God, we bow before you and we thank you for who Jesus is. He is Lord. He is Son of God. He is so many things. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is indeed the one who offers us and brings us salvation that we could never have on our own. And I pray for everyone who hears this message here in the room, out on YouTube, on the podcast, I pray that every last one of these folks will come to Jesus to find salvation. And if there's anyone who hears this who's wrestling with, am I a Christian? I don't know. I plead with you, God, to make them lay down their lives, let go of self, and run to Jesus for mercy. Please, God, save souls. And I pray that we'll remember that Jesus is king And that we will surrender to him and be grateful that he is the one you've promised and he is Lord forever. God, do work in us that we might better honor you. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.